Welcome to the Listen to Your Footsteps podcast. I'm your host, Kojo Buffum, and this podcast is an extension of my book, also called Listen to Your Footsteps, which is a collection of essays, reflections, and poetry on things like fatherhood, identity and belonging, growing up, creativity, and the lessons learned. The purpose of this podcast is to gain insight and learn from the journeys that others have taken. I explore the worlds of art, culture, design, business, creativity, and life from the perspective of Africans who are contributing to the redefinition of the continent and who we are. My guest for this episode is Mimi Kalinda. Um, she has a lot of titles next to her name and she has a long list of accomplishments. Um, but I guess the main title is Group CEO and Co-Founder of the Africa Communications Media Group, a Pan-African Public Relations and Communications Agency. Uh, welcome, Mimi. Thank you. Thanks, Kojo, for having me. I was just... Uh... I was I tweeted and I put on a, a social media this morning that I'm both excited and nervous to speak to you today. We're just going to have a conversation about <laughs> stuff. I know, I know, but I know you're one of those deep, soulful guys and I'm like, oh my gosh, he's going to make me dig deep into my stuff. So, um, but I'm excited, really excited and congratulations on this platform. It's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. So my first, my, my first general standard question is, what did you want to be when you grow up? Mm. What did I want to be when I grew up? Um, I always wanted to be in the media. It's always like such an interesting question for me because usually people are like, oh, I wanted to be like a fireman. And then I ended up being a banker or whatever. Like, you know, people um, are usually very multifaceted and complex mm. and therefore um, their answers to that question, is, you know, are, are kind of, you know, most of the time varied. Whereas yeah. mine it is not. I've always wanted to be in the media. I've always wanted to be in communications. I can't think of any time where I wanted to do anything else. Where, where was, where's that spark from? I mean, what was, is there a particular moment or um, a particular environment where you saw this and went, that's the space that I want to be in? So growing up, I mean, I was born in the DRC and then we traveled a lot um, from the time I was about five or six. Uh, my parents were diplomats or my dad was a diplomat. So we lived in different cities around the world. Um, and so when you move around a lot as a child, um, you know, I, I mean, it, it's got huge advantages, obviously, in terms of adaptability, you know, being able to um, learn different languages and all of those kinds of things. But what it also does is that you don't form any real deep attachments to any one place mm. or particular people. So for me, my solace was television. Um, and I spent a lot of time watching TV. Um, I spent a lot of television was kind of my friend and the characters on television were my friends. Um, because, you know, if, if you, if you get hooked onto a show, whether you're living in, in Portugal or back in South Africa, etc., you can always find those same characters wherever you yeah. go. So they were kind of my constant. Um, so I became, I fell in love with television really, really early. And I knew 
that, you know, somehow, some way, I wanted to be part of those characters' lives to bring them, you know, either be one of the characters or to bring them to life or something. But I knew that I felt comfortable in that world. So um, I think that, that's where the spark came from, was just trying to find stability as a child. And television and content really providing that for me, providing that con- that constant across geographic boundaries i'm curious what so what shows or what programming um holds special memories for you well you know i mean um i so fast forward um you know past the the 80s into the the 90s and we landed in south africa in the early 90s 1991 to be precise um if i had to pick a show that had the most impact on me is probably like Days of Our Lives and The Bold and the Beautiful. And I know it sounds super corny, but for me, like when I came to South Africa in the early 90s, I spoke not a word of English. Mm. So I was fluent in French and I was fluent in Portuguese. But what I loved about soap operas, and it was deliberate on my mother's part to make us watch the stuff, is that it forces you to follow a storyline. So I really want to know what happens to John and Marlena. And, but I don't understand what they're saying because they're speaking English. And mm. I'm almost what your brain does is it forces itself to learn quicker than you normally would um, so that you can then follow the storyline in the long term. And it's really interesting because it's actually, it's proven scientifically. So, you know, if you've heard of the uh, Sabido methodology, which is used in soap operas in Brazil, um, telenovelas, etc., yeah. it, it's been shown by, that by following long format um, popular culture content, uh, your brain really makes an effort to not only take in messaging, um, and adapt it as the way to do, uh, the way to live. But it also helps you to learn language. It helps you to learn the social norms. Um, and so it's a huge edu- educator. So if there was one that I would pick that probably made the most impact on me, it's, it's uh, Days of Our Lives and then followed by The Bold and Beautiful, simply because it helped me to adapt to an environment from a linguistic point of view mm. uh, much quicker than I normally would have. I mean that's interesting because as you as you're talking about it, I'm thinking about you know soap operas do have that really long you know story threads, and you have multiple threads happening at the same time um, over a very long period. Um, and I mean I was just reflecting because you know one of one of my I guess my gripes about the world we live in today or the world of creator today is how temporary so many things or how impermanent so many things are. And, and I was just thinking about how, I guess the transition away from your typical, your typical soapies to, you know, 13 episode or 26 episode that we can, you can binge watch over a particular period, um, over a very short period it also must have an impact. And at the same time, the popularity of, you know, the Korean, the Portuguese, Turkish, um, and telenovelas in general, um, there seems to be, it, feel, it feels like there's a revival at the same time. Maybe it's also tied to all of this 
like all of this thinking, it's an inherent human need that we've kind of lost touch with. Absolutely. And it's really, I mean, it's interesting for me, you know, when I really try to avoid binge watching television series because I, they just make me anxious, you know, there's like a level of anxiety that I can't get over it to get to the next and get to the next, et cetera. Whereas, you know, at least growing up, like with, uh, with telenovelas and soap operas, for me, it was like, I mean, you know, the foresters were like a part, an extension of my family, you know. I was deeply invested in what happened in those storylines. Mm. But also I knew that, you know, just as, as in real life, things chop and change all the time, you know. So this one, you know, um, did something really terrible to this character. But then somewhere down the road, you felt like, you know, just as in real life, they'll reconcile, they'll get along again, and there'll be another piece of drama in Wahala that will happen and whatever. And it was so comforting um, as, you know, specifically because, you know, I think my own personal life was quite volatile. Um, it, it, I found a huge level of comfort in that. Mm. And I, I no longer watch soap operas now, but, um, you know, I, I find that the content that we make now is hugely informative, lots of content. One gets to learn a whole lot, but it leaves me with a sense of anxiety and um, the short-termness um, doesn't sit quite well with me as a person. Mm. So, Having moved around and then eventually kind of settling, I guess, settling more in South Africa, how have you navigated identity? Um, you know, where do you identify with in terms of, let's say, culture and background and, and country? Um, and how, how do you, how do you navigate that and make sense of that? Such an interesting question. Um, and I know you can relate as well because I know your, your background is, is just as um, colorful and rich. Um, but I think for me, I wrote a piece recently, a blog uh, called Where Are You From? And it's the question that makes me the most nervous. I told you you make me nervous. Um, <laughs> I, it's the question that makes me the most nervous because I never quite know how to answer it. Um, my identity has always been really, really fluid. And I think I made a deliberate choice at a very young age, not to um, get stuck in any sort of silos in terms of who I say I am or, you know, what I can identify with most. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I was born in the Congo. My dad is from DRC. My mom is from Rwanda. Um, you know, I mean, I lived in five, six different countries, um, you know, before the age of 13. Um, moved to South Africa, established this as home, but then, you know, traveled from here to live in different places as well. London, New York, I went to school at NYU. So it's, you know, for me, it's it's really, really, it's difficult to pinpoint. So my identity is varied, it's fluid, it's, um, I think it's, you know, I'd like to use the word modern if I can, uh, because I think a lot of us are like that. I think mm. there's a, there are a lot more of, you know, there are a lot more people like me and, and you 
um, specifically when you look at the African diaspora across the world, um, then there are people who, um, you know, and don't quote me on this, but I mean, I think that there are more people like you and I around uh, nowadays, um, at least in the circles in which I, I, I live, I, I see that a lot more. And it's comfortable. Um, so I don't have a specific identity. I don't identify with any one specific country. Um, and I often say uh, the place where I I felt the most comfortable in terms of this question of where are you from um, was when I lived in New York because mm -hmm. no one ever asks you that because everybody's from everywhere. Um, so, and, and that for me was, um, you know, it just blew my mind to be able to live in a place where, where you came from actually really didn't matter. Um, and nobody really ever spoke about it because everyone has a different answer to that question which is very, very different to the rest of the U.S., but New York in particular is just such an incredible melting point. Uh, point. Um, so, yeah, um, I don't know that. And, and, yeah, and, and South Africa is, so South Africa is challenging in that it's still very early in the journey of understanding, you know, for example, understanding that people like you and I are not an anomaly, right? Um, and... And, and because of that, you know, because of that, the transition or the evolution that the country is still going through. I mean, the first time I had to, I had to reconcile with the idea of race was when I came to South Africa as a 19 year old. Um, and, and where in, you know, in this country, if you, if you're submerged in this country, you're not allowed to sit on the fence. Uh, but what I found, I guess, in, in the same way that you did, I mean, I identify with particular countries a lot more, but in the same way that you did for me was, you know, I can sit on the fence. I can be, I can be all these things at the same time. And I can have a relationship with each one at the same time. You know, it's like that whole conversation around, you know, when there's something happening in the world, um, and, you know, somebody will, and you see it on social media, somebody goes, yeah, but what about this? Right. And it's like, no, I'm as concerned about that thing as I am about the thing that I'm talking about right now. You can, you can, you can be concerned about two things at the exact same time. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. Um, and, and it's, it's really interesting because, um, when I was doing a, the Tutu Fellowship, um, I, the idea that really hit home for me in this leadership program was around um, the world being and and as opposed to either or. And mm. I was like, that's exactly what I've been trying to say this whole time. Um, is that you know there's actually you know there it's okay to live in the gray area, and in yeah. fact it's rich and it's 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 beautiful and it it brings a complexity that matches the complexity of the world in which we live. Um, so, um, you know, so I've been, I've been really trying to push this idea, both in my work, but also in my personal spaces of it's okay to be and, and, um, mm. I'm this and I'm that, and I'm that I'm not either or, um, but you're right. I mean, South Africa, obviously based on its, you know, historical evolution and where we are as a country at the moment, 
is um, you know is is still is still on, on the journey to um, to defining that for itself. And you know, you see, when I speak about South Africa, I say we because I completely identify as a South African as well. You know, but that doesn't take away from you know all of the other you know identities that that are part of me. Yeah. Um. Let's talk Channel O because the first time I. I think the first time I saw you and then I later on met you was when you presented on Channel O. And it, it felt like, well, I guess it was early days. So I was going to say it felt like you came out of nowhere. But I mean, at, at that stage, things like Channel O were, were, I guess, new to all of us. How did, how did that come about? Oh, Koja, you had to take it back. You had to take it back. Yeah, um, like, uh, I, 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 like, I like context. I love it. Um, Channel O was wonderful. Um, so yeah, young girl. Uh, at the time, I was uh, I was at Fitz University studying law. Um, again, my obsession with television and what was going on in popular culture. Um, and I, you know, Channel O just kind of burst onto the scene, and I was like, wow, this is incredible. I was such a huge fan of MTV at the time, and I used mm. to. And hours and hours watching MTV, but really couldn't relate, obviously, from an African perspective. Um, and there was our very own 24 hours music television channel, and it blew my mind. So, as I've done many times in my life, I just kind of picked up the phone, I called Mnet, and I, I said, you know, I, you know, just figured out who was in charge of this new. A uh, new platform, um, and I ended up having a conversation with Sandy Lenzano. Um, and so she, you know, we had a, a 10 minute conversation, and I said to her, Love what you're doing. I think it's really phenomenal. If there was anything I would change about it, is the fact that you're speaking to an entire continent, and mm -hmm. I just don't think that your platform is diverse enough. Um, who's speaking French, who's speaking Swahili, who's speaking Portuguese um, on your channel. These are all languages that are spoken across the continent in addition to English. And I think that if you want to have that wider reach, you really need to consider being a little bit more diverse. Um, and guess what? I can fill that gap. <laughs> you know, I, I know that I can do this. I speak all of those languages. Um, and I think you should really give me a chance, um, you know, not only because I want to do this, but it's good for you. It's going to be good for you <laughs> to have me on your channel. And she said, well, okay, so you're, you're, you have, um, you know, you're, you're very daring and bold. I'd love to see you. I'd love to meet you. So I went in addition, and then I ended up getting the job at Channel O. Um, so if you look at most of my shows, um, you know, Later on in my career at Channel O, I started doing a lot of English English shows, but it was mostly French, Portuguese. I'd throw in some Swahili, some Bengala, some Kinyaranda. So I was kind of, you know, catering to um, to the wider uh, continent, mm -hmm. uh, Francophone, Lusophone, etc. So that's, that's how I ended up on Channel O. So what I found interesting about your trajectory, right, is... So you did Channel O, you went on to, you know, MTV Europe. Um, you then, you, you know, you then studied and it was, it was all down kind of, I guess, television and media, et cetera, at the forefront. Um, and, and then all of a sudden there's this 
I mean, like you were saying earlier on, you've always been fascinated by media and communications, et cetera, et cetera. But from the outside, it was like, okay, you are on this trajectory. It's in media, it's in production, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, there you are in comms and PR. Mm-hmm. And, and, and going from a, let's, let's call it an inverted commas dynamic industry, uh, but also very unstable industry to, to, you know, borderline corporate, borderline uh, formal business. Yeah. How did you make that jump? So when I left MTV, um, I left it with a very clear intention that I was, I I wanted to learn more about um, the psychology of the media. I was fascinated by that. So I knew that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life figuring out like who Christina Aguilera was dating. Um, And that I was, I kind of wanted to delve into how does the media use its voice um, and how does it shape content and narratives to move people to action? Um, And that's why I went to NYU. Um, and while I was there, I really immersed myself in everything that was kind of behind the camera. Um, and the, the, the degree that I did, which was media studies, was very theoretical. So the theory of the media fascinated me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, I, was, I was clear from the beginning that um, I wanted to, you know, obviously have fun and kind of build a voice and a persona for myself as an on-camera person, but the behind the camera and specifically the psychology of the media was really fascinating for me. I'm really an academic at heart, actually, you know, and I I spend, I love studying, I'm now teaching um, and everything psychology uh, as it comes to to the media is, is a huge area of interest for me. So when I... Um, finished at NYU and I kind of went into this world of activism and I started talking about, you know, how to reshape the the narrative of the continent. And I was, you know, marching in New York and I was making films and sending them to various film festivals. And I was working with Spike Lee at the time and he's such an activist in his own space. Mm -hmm. And so coming back to the continent, I I tried to find that space because I didn't know about PR. I actually didn't even know that it was like a thing, you know. Um, and uh, but I I started working in the activist space, and I met this lady um, when I was in Arusha one day in Tanzania shooting something, um, and we had a long conversation. Turns out her name was Diana Peterson, and turns out she was one of the uh, directors at a global PR company. And just listening to me and listening to my trajectory and listening to my interests, she was like, you are a PR person. And I was like, tell me more. What's PR? And she's like, well, everything that you've done so far, um, you know, your passion for shaping narratives, your passion for storytelling um, and, and how to use the media to influence um, or use communications and various communication tools to influence um, people's perceptions and, you know, and down the roads, their behavior and actions. That's all PR. That's what we do. And I was like, no way. Like, this is actually a profession. And she said, yes, um, you should come and join us. So I went and I joined this company and she taught me everything that I know. And mm. what I loved about it was that it brought 
everything that I had done together. So, you know, the traveling around Africa with Channel O, you know, building various relationships with um, with media colleagues, um, you know, learning different languages so that you can communicate to various sets of stakeholders. Um, you know, what I'd done at MTV, which had given me a huge opening into what communications like on a global and international mm. scale and what the best practices there were all about. Um, what I'd learned at NYU, um, you know, what I'd learned at, with Spike, I had also worked at HBO, Showtime, Lifetime, Oxygen in New York, ad sales, all of those things kind of came together. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is where everything converges, is really in strategic communications. And so that's how I ended up um, in PR, it was, and for me, it was an amalgamation of everything that I had done up until that point. I just didn't know that there was a job that I could do that would bring everything together. Mm, serendipity is a, is, a, is a wonderful thing to a certain extent. I mean, I found when I went to Destiny Man magazine and I'd, I'd grown up in family business working in different businesses, um, and then even being in Joburg and working in different spaces. And then I walked into Destiny Manda one day and I realized that, oh, that's why I, you know, I worked at the post office for a year as a project manager. And that's why I worked as a, as a book at an actor's agency because to edit a magazine, I needed, I needed at least a working knowledge of a wide range of topics. Um, to be able to, you know, to be able to know whether it's on point or not, not necessarily be an expert. So it, it, it's, it's fascinating sometimes, I guess, when we, when we're able to look back and we're able to reflect to see how the, the different things connect. Absolutely. The, the dots connect backwards, right? Yeah. Isn't that yeah, what Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs said? Yeah, yeah. That's one of my favorite, yeah. one of my favorite quotes. Mm. Two quick, two quick sidebars. Did you finish your law degree? And why did you go and do law? Thank goodness I didn't finish it, Kojo. I mean, I was bored to tears, to be <laughs> honest. And yeah, I was just having a conversation with my son the other day, who's 15 years old, and we're trying to figure out, you know, college, university, what is he going to do, et cetera, et cetera. And I always say, you know, they, they just ask kids to choose too early who they want to be for the rest of their lives. Um, so it wasn't wasted uh, because, I mean, I learned a lot and I did three years of, of law school at BITS um, and I was able to use those credits when I was at NYU anyway. Mm. So um, that, that just um, accelerated me getting my degree. Um, but I, I just, I knew for a fact that I was never going to be a lawyer. I could not imagine um, working as a lawyer, um, you know, after, you know, I mentioned earlier that I always wanted to be in media since I was a little girl. Um, I ended up there because to be honest, I didn't know what else to study. I didn't know that there was a thing called media studies. I didn't want to go into, um, film school for example, or art school, or, you know, I just, I, I didn't know that there was an option out there that I could go and learn about how the media shapes people's minds. And so the closest I could come to that was law in my, in my own mind. I was like, well, you know, the law is kind of, you know, used to 
influence policies and it shapes the world in which we live. So that's kind of the closest I can get to what I want to do, which I was so wrong. Um, and it also, I suppose, made my parents happy. Um, and by my parents, I mean, you know, my uncles specifically who kind of raised me. My mom, thankfully, um, is has just been the biggest gift for me as a parent because she is one of those women who's so open-minded. She lets us explore anything and everything as long as we don't hurt ourselves or other people. So she was very encouraging from the very beginning um, of my media career. She was like, this is your passion. And her whole thing has always been, um, whatever you do, do it really, really well. Apply yourself and you'll be successful. It doesn't matter what you do. So um, so she wasn't a problem. But I just honestly, Kojo, I just didn't know what else to study. So I just went to the thing that came, um, I suppose, that presented itself um, and that I thought made the most sense. And that was law. Hated it. <laughs> and then working working for Spike Lee, um, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge admirer. So that's why that's the second sidebar. Um, how did that come about? And, and um, you know, what was that experience like? So Spike teaches at NYU. Um, okay. And so he was uh, one of uh, the professors that I had access to at NYU. And um, I mean, such a huge admirer of his work, obviously, and just completely starstruck. Um, I don't think I heard a single thing he said in class, to be honest. I was like, <laughs> can't believe this is Spike teaching me. Um, but when I graduated, I got an offer to go and work at 40 Acres and a Mule. So I spent about a year and a half to two years working under him and a gentleman called Monty Ross, who was like kind of his right-hand person yeah. um, at the time at 40 Acres. And Monty, I mean, I, I literally, my desk was like right next to him and he took me under his wing and he was incredibly generous in terms of um, just understanding where I was coming from, what I wanted to accomplish, advice, guidance, prayer sometimes. I mean, really, he became like a second father to me and um, loved, loved, loved working with him. Um, and so, yeah, my time at 40 Acres um, was fantastic. And honestly, I it didn't even dawn on me that at some point I wanted to come back to the continent and contribute. Um, my career trajectory in my own mind looked like stay in New York, make a couple of films, um, you know, really kind of build on this whole um, narrative platform, still do work that contributes back to the continent. But I loved living in New York and I had no intention of coming back. Um, and, and until Spike kind of flipped the script on me and he was like, well, you know, do you want to be, in, do you want to stay here and like try to be another Spike Lee um, in America? Or you're so passionate about what happens on your continent. Do you actually want to go back and try to change the narrative there? And mm -hmm. he gave me a very concrete example. And he said, you know, the work that I do is primarily for African-American audiences. Sure. If, every, if anybody else watches my work, fantastic. And that's a bonus. But ultimately, I am, um, I'm putting a mirror in front of my own people and saying, look at us and look at 
you know, th- this is a reflection of us. And that gives us an opportunity to decide, do we want to be the people that we see in the mirror or do we want to evolve to, to be better than that? Um, and so, and he was like, you know, narratives are shaped internally first. You yeah. have to believe that you have what it takes. You have to believe that you're, you're, you're not worth this um, kind of, you know, completely untrue, unfair and unbalanced narrative of your own continent. Um, and if you're able to change mindsets within the continent, then that there's going to be a ripple effect and the global community will automatically at some point come to the fore, which is we're starting to see that now um, and give Africa and Africans their due. Um, And I think you need to do that on the continent. You really want to have an impact. You're not going to have an impact in America. You need to go and work on the continent as a narrative shaper um, and and build build your, your passion there. So that's how I ended up. I'm coming back to to Africa uh, based on that conversation, which really moved me. You are listening to the Listen to Your Footsteps podcast, a podcast in which I chat to Africans from a cross-section of society and sectors, including art, culture, design, business, and creativity, to name a few. I delve into their journeys, the decisions they've taken to get to where they are, how they do what they do, and everything in between. Essentially, we go wherever the conversation takes us. I'd like to talk Africa Communications Media Group now, in terms of, in terms of, in, in, with your journey, where you know you you had different, you had a couple of different agencies, you had made that transition to the let's say the comms and PR space, uh, and then going out and actually creating. What is one of the first? I, I would I would I would think one of the first kind of African. African established um, organizations that deals with, let's call it the African narrative across the continent, um, as opposed to, which is my bugbear in, in South Africa. We talk about Africa, but when people talk about Africa, they actually just mean South Africa. Um, so, so, I mean, and you've been able to really do Harness, harness your background and harness your perspectives and your understanding to create an organization that truly is pan-African. Right. Where, where was that seed planted and, and what's, what was the early days of that journey? Well, the early days of that journey was, you know, I think working with global PR companies who have a very specific uh, perspective on the continent, but a, per- a perspective that is very, um, that takes a blanket approach to the continent where, you know, I mean, the there's almost no, no nuances to be spoken mm. of um, uh, between Nigeria and South Africa. And I'm like, what are you talking about? There's there are two completely different countries of so many different levels. Surely we cannot advise our clients to take the same strategic approach to communicating in those countries. Mm. Um, but also to be honest with you, um, I was tired of being the token African in the room because mm. you know I, I was I was leading so you know, for these, for some of these agencies, I was like, kind of like the director of Africa. What, what does that mean? Mm. Like, I don't even, you know, like how am I the <laughs> yeah. Africa director? Um, and, and what I found that, that meant 
was that when we go and pitch to a client um, and we say we've got Africa covered, um, we can just bring Mimi into a room and that will mean we have Africa covered. Mm-hmm. And, I, and you know, it doesn't mean that we need to invest in Africa. It doesn't mean that we actually need to start building a network. It doesn't mean that our client strategies as far as Africa is concerned are nuanced and take into consideration the, the com- complex dynamics of each of our African countries. It doesn't need to mean any of that. It just means that because we've hired Mimi as the Africa director, that should automatically convince people that we really care about Africa and we're, we're really invested on the continent. Yeah. And I was like, no, that's actually not, uh, that's actually not how that's going to work. Um, so I left and I wanted to, you know, I partnered with Addison Mayu, who's my um, co-founder at ACG, incredible Pan-Africanist um, and has been working on the continent for years and years, based in Ethiopia. And we're like, we really need to create something that's truly African and live those values. Um, we need to create an agency that's culturally attuned to everything that's happening on the continent. So I'm from Congo for example and I know that the, the you know a person or, or audiences that are based in Kinshasa have very different needs to um, the ones that are you know on the eastern side of the DRC mm-hmm. which is more has more of an affiliation to like Rwanda Kenya Uganda Burundi yeah. uh, than than Kinshasa so and that's within one country South Africa we speak 11 official languages you know so which agency is really taking all of those things and those insights into consideration um, and then working literally in every single African country? And that's, so that was, uh, that was a very, uh, um, that was our, our dream. Um, but it was really, if you think about the catalyst, it was like, I'm really tired of being the, the token African here mm. um, and, and not having any impact, any real impact, you know. And it does, it does feel like you are, you've been vindicated in that perspective and in that decision, just in terms of how the organization has grown. Um, how has your role changed? Cause, you know, when one goes onto your LinkedIn profile, there's a lot of things that just say whatever till present. Um, and it feels like because your role has changed. I mean, you talked about, for example, teaching now and, and being at heart an academic. It does feel that it's it's given you you the opportunity to start to pursue things that are personally important to you beyond just being an entrepreneur. Yes, 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 absolutely. Uh, Koja, I don't know if you have the same issue, but it's just I think my thing is to like just stick to one thing. I'm so interested by so many different things that sometimes I find that I spread myself completely thin. Um but I, um, so an interesting thing about entrepreneurship, right, is that, um, and I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day who uh, brought this to the fore, but it just really resonated. So as an entrepreneur, you go into the world of entrepreneurship to solve a specific problem about an area that you're super passionate about. And then you look back a couple of years down the road. And you're actually not doing what you're passionate about. You're running a business, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 it's a huge difference. 
uh, which I had to learn um, on my, in my journey because I was like, I'm really passionate about changing the narrative and I'm really passionate about telling African stories. But actually, I just really need to think about PL and I need to think about like hiring processes and putting in place, you know, um, policies for the company and this and that, which is nothing to do with like my passion, right? Exactly. But <laughs> but um, but thankfully, as you grow, um, you learn that you can't be everything to your business. So I got to a place where I was able to hire people who are incredibly talented at doing the things that I'm not talented at all at doing. Um, and then spend a lot more time again, doing what I'm passionate about. So the storytelling and leadership platform that I've just launched, um, you know, around teaching and coaching people on the art of storytelling and persuasion and communications, um, you know, working more closely with our clients and really spending time understanding their challenges and the problems they're solving for um, and, and coming to the table with solutions that are, I, I think, you know, um, applicable and efficient, um, spending time traveling and meeting our partners and affiliates across the continent, which, you know, who are a huge reason why I started this business anyway, having traveled with Channel O and in some of my other roles with global PR companies, I met incredibly talented communications and media professionals around the continent. Um, and as I was starting to run the business, you know, those relationships kind of get put on hold, um, but I'm, you know, renewing those. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, but I suppose uh, leadership is contextual and it's time sensitive um, and what your leadership, your, your company requires of you in terms of your leadership style at one point won't be the same um, at another. So mm. I'm transitioning back into my passion, essentially, at the moment. Um, we were acquired by uh, a company in Spain, Minority uh, Share, uh, a couple of months ago which means that we have now, I think, you know, enough of a, a team to be able to lead um, the administrative side of, re of, mm. of running the business. Um, and I can really go back to what I love doing, which is telling great stories. Yeah, so my, 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 um, see, my approach to all of this has been, uh, I'm not trying to build a company. So in, in some instances, I guess because of what you talked about, in some instances, I feel myself being pushed to, you know, establish a company and then build it up and everything else. Um, but I also kind of reached the point where it's like, I want to build a life um, as opposed to, you know, building a company that I'm then beholden to. And, and, and my work is, you know, my work is a means to an end. Um, and at the same time, I want the time and the space to do things like this, like, like, I've been, you know, I started a podcast, I have an email newsletter and they don't make me any money right now, right? In fact, I put more into it to ensure that it can run than I'm currently getting out of it. But it's, but it's because it's something that I've always wanted to do. And I, you know, I believe in its potential to at least pay for itself. So I'm, I'm going to allocate time and energy and attention to it. Because like you're saying, it's, you know, it's something that I, it's one of the things on the list that I always wanted to do. 
and it's being able to find that balance between sorry yeah your question I was just going to ask whether you think it's mutually exclusive though like you know this whole idea of building a life and building a business um do you think they're mutually exclusive in, like going back to our our discussion earlier around and and as opposed to either or um I guess I guess they're not mutually exclusive but just the way the I guess the way we look at you know the way we look at life like I I live a particular way because I had to be very deliberate about about my time and my attention and at the same time at the same time certain aspects of my life have suffered for it right so like I left destiny man and I always say I left because of my children because I, I at some stage I realized that I was working to be able to provide a certain kind of lifestyle for my family but I never saw my family and in my mind it didn't make sense so I made the decision to leave and I saw my family all the time but at the same time the way the world is structured um let's let's say my earning my earning ability took a knock you know so so now i i kind of yeah i guess i kind of live on my own terms like i have certain projects and i have certain things that i'm doing but i also have things that i do because they pay the bills and and you know and yeah and if you know like joking live tomorrow i won the lottery um then i would literally just focus on my project so i'd focus on my podcast or the you know some of the the storytelling you know storytelling mechanisms that fascinate me like i still want to create a web series i have a couple of ideas for other podcasts i i want to write fiction you know i just had came out of the book nonfiction but i want to learn how to write in fiction and then and randomly i've gotten into the art of bonsai so i want to be able to buy bonsai trees yeah mm, interesting so it's, i guess it is it is about finding that balance but also understanding the things that you would do you know it's like what would you do if you had all the money in the world yeah 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 it's really interesting because um I do think I really do believe in that uh I don't know who said this but you know you can have it all you just can't have it all at the same time. Mm. Um and yeah I think I I can completely relate to what you're saying and for me specifically having lived and raised my kids on my own um for the last uh you know 14 13 years or whatever um finding that balance has been extremely difficult um because you know I work long hours I work extremely hard travel a lot specifically pre covid and then you have these children and this family that you kind of you know you're not spending as much time as you can with mm. um i thankfully I think children are extremely forgiving <laughs> and they're very adaptable and they deal with what they've been given you know so if you're born to a parent who is you know um not necessarily a workaholic but who spends a lot of time in the office and traveling etc you adapt to that as long as they're able to create a support system 
around you, then you don't feel neglected and you feel loved, etc. which is why family is so important. But yes, I think it's, a, it's definitely a balancing act. And I think, um, you know, like I look at people, for example, that has like spent their 20s, 30s, like working really, really, really hard and making a lot of money. And then, you know, like in their 40s or whatever, you know, they're completely established financially. Um, and they now want to spend time with their family and work that kind of stuff. They have regrets too. And, you know, and the other way around, you know, for those who are like more family oriented and kind of, you know, let work slide a little bit, they have, there's no perfect formula. Um, I guess it's, it's, about, it's about finding, yeah, it's about finding the one that works for you. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm realizing is that, you know, for those who have worked hard and I've had a couple of people say this to me, uh, the biggest regret is that by the time you want to come back to your family, um, your family has, has moved on. So you, you can't, there's certain things, there's certain things that you can't get back. But also interesting, I, I was reading something recently and I can't remember what it was. Um, the person said, the most important thing is, for example, you know, you have kids and when you're with your kids, it's the attention that you give your kids. It's, you know, children would rather a parent who, yes, they work very hard, but when you're together, you are 100% present together, as opposed to a parent who's very available, but is distracted. Um, and this was around particularly, you know, around like phones and, and technology in the digital world where it's like, okay, you're more available, but you're always distracted anyway. Anyway. Yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. And I also think, I mean, I found that when my children were much younger, um, and even though, I mean, parent guilt, I don't want to say mom guilt because I think all parents have a level of guilt for like not spending enough time with their kids, et cetera, et cetera. Mom guilt was like killing me. But mm. at the same time, now looking back, I'm like, those were actually the years where I could afford to leave them as, you know, as much as I did in good hands, obviously. Mm. But, um, you know, to travel and really, really put my foot down in terms of building my career because now they're teenagers and they actually need me more now. They, I need to be present more now. Like I cannot be, you know, my, my daughter has this thing. Um, uh, whenever I'm on my phone, if I'm, if I pick up the phone or if I'm, you know, on my WhatsApp while they're talking to me or whatever, you know, she always says to me, mom, you're plugged in, but you're not plugged in. You need to be plugged in to what's happening, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, but they need me to be a lot more plugged in now than when they were three, four, five, mm. you know? Um, so it's, it is such a balancing act for sure. It's, yeah, I think we all, that's one subject where we, nobody's got it perfect, um, but we're all trying to do the best we can. Yeah, look, I mean, kids are, my my latest thing was just when you think you have it figured out, they become teenagers. Um, so you know, like my son is my son is fourteen, going on fifteen, um, and it feels like a whole different level of of things to navigate. 
you know, when they're younger, because they, they change, I mean, they're changing. So it's like, they'll, they, you know, they'll, they'll flip it on you every year or two as they evolve. But for me, that jump to teenage, teenagehood, especially in this time when they're exposed to so much, um, it's, yeah, the, the, I must be honest, the last two years have been like a blur for me. No, definitely. And I find that, I mean, I'm parent, they're parenting me more than I'm parenting them, to be honest, Coach, at this point. Um, mine is 15 and 12. I still have a seven year old, thankfully, that <laughs> is my solace. <laughs> but my other two are so wise. I mean, some of the stuff they come up with and the conversations that we're able to have, like surely I didn't think like this when I was this age. And if mm. I did think like this, I never verbalized it. Um, but, you know, the conversations we're, we're able to have are really, really deep. And I think uh, that they challenge you too. They will not accept less than you are. Um, so they hold me accountable um, on everything in my life, from my personal life to my work. Um, they hold me accountable to what I've told. And, and what the interesting is, thing is, is that they hold you accountable to the values that you've taught them, mm. right? So when you're deviating from those, but when you're thinking on a different path, they're like, no, 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 no. But actually, shouldn't you be thinking like this? Because remember, you taught us this. I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> completely forgot um, interesting times. Interesting. So what what does, in your mind, what does your next, just kind of to close off, what do the next couple of years look like? As you, like you're saying, you, you're teaching, you've created, you know, storytelling platforms, you're, you're doing a lot more. It does feel like you've, there's a shift happening. What does that, what, what does it look like to you in like a year from now, two years from now? So interesting because I think you're very intuitive um, because there is definitely a shift happening. I'm at a crossroads right now. And just the other day as I was meditating, the thing that came to me, the thought that kind of hit me right in the middle of my third eye was um, God is unable to work around your ego. Um, and so I'm really at a place where I need to just let go of control of the outcome. And so as opposed to um, having a to-do list in terms of what happens next, um, I have a to-be list, right? Um, so I want to be healthy. I want to be fulfilled. I want to be all of these things that I want to be and how I, I get there. I'm not really 100% sure. And I'm just at a place where I want to be guided towards that outcome because I'm also very, very clear that a lot of the stuff that ha has happened in my life so far, Kaja, I mean, honestly, we're not on some sort of vision board mm -hmm. um, that I had before. Things have just happened the way they've happened. I've met the right people at the right time. Um, and I've kind of been guided in a specific direction. And I remember my prayer as a young girl growing up was always show me where I'm supposed to go. Show me where I'm supposed to go. And and I really have been shown and guided along the way. So I know I love to teach. I've created a platform that allows me to do that. Where that takes me, I'm not 100% sure. Um, 
I've sold part of my company and we're getting to know our new partners now and, um, you know, and spending time with them and understanding and merging our two cultures. Um, and, and where that ends up, to be honest, I mean, of course, I've got KPIs to meet and things like that. But where that ends up for me professionally in two to three years time, I have no clue. Um, and, um, and yeah, I'm writing a book as well. And that's really kind of an outlet for me to get some, some of my thoughts and experiences out mm. around storytelling and its impact on leadership. And we'll see where that goes. But the answer is ultimately I have no clue. Um, and I, I, I'm being guided to where I need to be and I'm allowing that process to take place. No, I, I, I mean, I do believe we are where we're supposed to be doing what we're supposed to be doing. Um, whether it's exactly how we envisage it to be or not, it, it is, you know, it is what it is. And, and I guess the, one of the biggest challenges, and if you look at the last, the uncertainty of the last two years for a lot of people was, was being forced to really live in kind of the, the present and, and being able to live in what's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. You know, to well, not even looking beyond that, just kind of focusing on okay, what's in front of me? Uh, let me tackle this because that's what's right here now. And if it changes, yeah. then I will change. Exactly, exactly. That's such a great way of putting it. That's exactly that's exactly the space in which I am as well. Thank you very much. That was really really cool. Thank you. Thank you so and, much for having me. And I'm now curious and excited to see what's what's still to come. Yes, me too. <laughs> me too. Let's see. And I'm excited for you as well, Kojo, to see what's to come for you next. Yeah, thank you, man. The Listen to Your Footsteps podcast is produced by Zebra Culture. If you have ideas of what we can do better, people you'd like us to have a conversation with, I would just like to share a thought. You can email me on info at zebraculture.com. To check out past episodes, go to kojabuffer.com slash podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share with a friend. If you'd like to get a copy of the book, listen to your footsteps, check out kojabuffer.com slash book. There are details on the various spaces it's available at. I'd also appreciate it if you could leave a review or comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, there's the Zebra Culture by Koja Buffer newsletter where on a weekly basis, I share a curated list of articles, playlists, videos, etc. that have caught my attention. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it.